If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask that you open it to Romans chapter 4 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you in the pew in front of you, you can find Romans 4 on page 941 of that black Bible. The past 150 or so years, we've had many new innovations in technology that have come our way that have radically changed the way that we live in the world. So radically has it changed the way that we've lived in the world, it's almost impossible to think of what life would be without it. Not just smartphones, although smartphones are a good place to start, as it's unthinkable how I even got through high school without having a cell phone. I, how did I find my friends? I, I didn't know where they were. They weren't at home. I had no way of locating them. But not just smartphones, the internet in general has completely changed the way in which we live in the world. And we can keep working backwards from there. Cable and satellite TV, microwave, television, radio, automobiles, refrigeration, telephones, railroads, even Gutenberg's press have radically changed the way that we live in the world, even though most of us don't even own books anymore. We just read off of our smartphones. That's what they're there for, after all. Think about living in the early 1800s and how difficult that must have been. If you lived in a small village and you moved away from the people that you knew, communication with them would have been incredibly difficult. If you think that the post office is slow today, go back then and see how long it took to get letters from one place to another. Remember that when things broke in your house, you didn't have YouTube to look up how to fix them. So when the dishwasher broke, you weren't going to fix it. And I've got worse news, there were no dishwashers because you lived in the early 1800s, so you had no dishwashing, no washing machine, no central air, no central plumbing, none of that. All of these things are very difficult for us to kind of compile on top. It, things are different now. Innovation and technology has changed the way we view the world. There is one event above all others that has done this, though, and that is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the apex of all of these events. Nothing has changed the world more than that one event. It has shaped cultures. It has shaped nations. It has shaped people. It has shaped the world. The question that we might pose, that we've already posed for other innovations, and we might pose for Jesus and the coming of his death and resurrection as a, an announcement of good news for us is, well, what happens to those who came before? What was life like for them before the change? What was it like for Jews before Jesus came? To put it a little bit more on the nose, what was salvation like before Jesus arrived? Were Jews saved by works? Did God look at the way in which Jews lived, look at how well they kept the law, and simply tip his cap at them when they tried really hard and say, that's probably good enough, Abraham, thank you. Or did they get justified and were they saved by faith? And if so, the question is faith in what? We're really particular about who Jesus is and what he came to do. There is salvation and in no other name under heaven besides the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, Abraham didn't know a Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What did he believe in? If he was saved by faith, what did that faith look like? Have all of God's people, not just God's people post the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but all of his people from Abraham on down been saved in the same manner? Have they always been saved by faith? As Paul continues to look backward before we move forward, let us hear his answer as we read Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, 
but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the good, trustworthy, and inerrant word of our God. We can answer part of our question real easy, really straightforward. Were the saints justified by their works in the Old Testament, or were they justified by faith? And we can answer without any hesitation. The Old Testament saints were justified by faith. Point number one, the Old Testament saints were justified by faith. Paul begins by straightforwardly asking about the father of the faith, the one man amongst all men among whose God's redemptive plan started, Abraham. He says, what did he find? What was gained by Abraham? It's no small question because many people would read in the Old Testament, Jews would read in the Old Testament and, and say, well, Abraham was such a righteous man. He did so many things that God commanded him to do and, and therefore he must have been saved by that. And Paul goes on to ask, well, if he was indeed justified by works, well, he's got, he's got something to boast about. The point is simple enough. If God were to look down on Abraham and say, Abraham, man, you... You have kept my words so well, so carefully have you walked in my ways that there's no way I could count you as anything but righteous. Then Abraham could look at God and say, you know it, man. I, I did everything perfect. I kept all of your laws exactly the way you wanted me to. I have not misstepping either to the left or to the right in any way, shape, or form. You, you don't have to give me righteousness. You don't have to give me eternal life. I have earned it from you. It is my due, as Paul says. But he's quick to point out that this is not indeed what has happened. Obviously, if we are given a gift, it is not something that is due to us. If we have been given a gift from outside of us, and if we are justified only because of what Christ has done, how can we boast in what we have done when that does not justify us? You might be able to boast in the Lord. As Paul would elsewhere say, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's perfectly fine. Boast in the Lord because he's the one who's done it. But you don't have a right to boast. There's nothing that you have done that has earned anything before God. If Abraham was indeed justified by his works, he would have a boast, but he does not have a boast. Paul turns directly to Scripture to back this up. Scripture that is quoted here, if you look down very carefully in the footnotes of your Bible, hopefully it labels the fact that this comes from Genesis 15. Before we go to Genesis 15, I would like to go a couple chapters back to Genesis 12 because I think that it helps us understand what Genesis 15 is actually telling us. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, we have the calling of Abraham. Now, before this, we know absolutely nothing about this Abram guy. He's just kind of chilling out in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he doesn't know God. It doesn't seem, and, and God doesn't really know him. And then all of a sudden, the word of the Lord comes to him, and he says, Go to Abram. Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. So Abram doesn't seem to know this God, but the word of the Lord comes to him. It says, get up and go, and I'll show you what's going to happen. So he, he looks at his wife Sarai, and she says, hey, hey, I think it's time for us to go. And Lot says, hey, can I come? He says, sure, Lot, you come along with me. And so the three of them leave, and they're going to go out. Now the interesting bit about that is that it's clear that there's something of faith going on here. Right? Abraham has to believe something about what's being told to him. He does, after all, get up and go. The word of the Lord comes to him and it says, hey, you've got to get up and go. And Abraham clearly believes that the Lord is talking to him. He, he clearly believes that this is some kind of God who's talking to him, so he gets up and goes. But this is not the place where the Lord says, ah, there, that faith is righteous. There's no doubt that there's faith here. I'm not quite sure why. I'm not sure why we wait until Genesis 15 to hear that. Perhaps Abraham was a little bored and he just wanted a bit of an adventure. And he wasn't really sure if the Lord was going to be with him to bless him, but he was like, hey, let's go give this a try. Anyway, I have no idea why it's not. But we do find out some interesting things in the intervening chapters. As Abraham travels down through Canaan, he ends up in Egypt where he is afraid of Pharaoh because his wife is beautiful and he's worried that they're going to kill him to get to his wife. And so he says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. The Lord puts an end to it before Sarah can have any sort of advantage taken of her. Abraham should be worried not only that they would have killed him to get to Sarah, but by lying that he would have had more danger coming to him. After all, he angered a god and Pharaoh almost, almost, has very, very troubling things happen to him. But instead of that, Pharaoh's gifts that he had given to Abraham beforehand, he lets him have. And he goes scot-free. God does seem to be blessing him even when he does wrong. The blessing is so rich that as he and Lot are traveling back up to Canaan, their men are fighting with one another and they realize that we're just, we're just too wealthy to stay together. Lot, you've got to go one way and I've I got to go the other. You choose which side you want. Do you want this west side or do you want the east side? Lot chooses the east and so Abraham chooses the west and goes to Canaan. Lot gets himself in a bit of trouble. Nine kings warring with one another. Five versus four. Lot gets caught up in it. Abram is so wealthy, he's got 318 trained warriors. He is basically a roving city king. And he goes and he rescues Lot. And God shows that he is protecting him and taking care of him. And not just him, Lot himself, simply because he's associated with Abraham, is becoming incredibly wealthy and is guarded by God himself. At the end of this, Melchizedek comes. And even as Abram gives him a tenth of all things, Melchizedek blesses him. These intervening chapters show us that God is being incredibly true to his word. Even as Abram has not walked what we might think of as incredibly righteously before God, nevertheless, God has blessed him. Nevertheless, God has been with him. Nevertheless, God is a shield to him. Then when we come to chapter 15, we read that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. It's an interesting way to start that out because there is absolutely nothing at the beginning of Genesis 15 that Abram should be scared of. He's already fought a war. Notice this is not back in chapter 14 where Abram had to go to war. The Lord doesn't appear to him then and say, don't worry, everything's going to work out. He's now at peace. 
There seems to be nothing that would cause him fear or anxiety, but nevertheless, the Lord shows up to him and says, I am your shield, which he has clearly shown that he is. Your reward shall be very great. A lot of prosperity preachers look at Abraham's life and they look at how he is just an incredibly wealthy man, especially coming out of Egypt and during this time, it is demonstrated that the Lord just continues to bless him and bless him and he's an incredibly wealthy man. It's important then to realize that both the Lord and Abram do not count that as his reward. This is your reward shall be very great. And Abram looks at all that he has. I think he's got 318 dedicated warriors. That means that he has a lot of people who are relying upon him, which means he has a lot of animals and he is an incredibly wealthy man. And he looks at God and he says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? What could you possibly grant to me? What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Eliezer of Damascus, probably a nice enough gentleman, clearly somebody who Abraham trusted, he was close to him. But Abraham knew the day that I died, this land, this possession, all of it's got to go somewhere. And it's not going to go to any one of my households. So it doesn't matter how much stuff you give me. It doesn't matter how many cattle and how many sheep I get. It doesn't matter how much gold I can wear around my neck. When I die, it goes to someone else. What will you give me? God does what he normally does. Takes him outside, says, look up. Imagine how bright that must have been without ambient light. How, how bright and stunning the Milky Way would have been on a clear night to somebody like Abraham. He looks up, sees millions of stars, says, that is what I will make your house into. That will be the number of children you have. Don't fear. Your reward will be great. Now, Abram, who is not yet called Abraham, Abram considers all this. And I'm thinking that with the benefit of hindsight that he doesn't have in Genesis 12, where he doesn't really seem to know the Lord. He now has walked with the Lord and the Lord has shown him his faithfulness. God has continually been kind to him, continually being faithful to his word. He has been blessed. Not only has he been blessed, but the, those who have stood by him and have not sinned against him, but, but come alongside of him have likewise been blessed with him. Abram takes all of that in and says, yeah, okay. The God who has been with me, who has been faithful to his word, can certainly do what he's promised now. God, well, that was all God needed. And he says, that is righteousness. All the, the faithfulness that you might have had, all of the, the good work that you might have done, that's not enough for me. But your faith in me is enough. He was justified 
by his trust in the word of God, by his trust in the promises of God, by his trust in God to do the very thing that he said. So how do we relate that righteousness, that faith, to the very faith in our Christ? It's simple. Abram believed what God said to him. He might not have known precisely the manner in which this was all going to be fulfilled. Doubtless, he would have not understood a lick of that because if God had pointed to us and said, hey, there's going to be a congregation of people, they're going to gather together, they're going to be your sons and daughters, but they're not actually going to come from you, it's going to be by faith, Abram wouldn't have understood a lick of that. He wouldn't have understood how we, who weren't from him, could be his sons and daughters, how we could be heirs of the promise that God gave to him. He might not have understood precisely how the promise and the manner of that promise would be fulfilled, but he was certain of the fulfillment of it, and he trusted in the fulfillment of it. And as time moves forward throughout Scripture, we have clarity being given to those promises. Moses prophesies that another prophet like him will arise. David is told that he will forever have a son to sit on the throne. Isaiah is told that there will be a servant coming who will look like one of those lambs that are sacrificed for the sins of the people. These things themselves don't crystallize the promise. They don't make it clear, perfectly easy to see. It's obviously not the case because even when Jesus walked around with people as the embodiment of those promises in human flesh, he says, hey, listen, I'm going to go to Jerusalem The elders and the authorities are going to reject me. They're going to crucify me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. And the disciples all looked at one another and they're like, that's a weird parable. Do we get that put on t-shirts or how how does that work? They clearly don't understand what Jesus is talking about or what he's doing, even when he's in their midst. But Nevertheless, Abraham, David, Isaiah, and all those Old Testament saints heard the word of the Lord and they believed that he would be good to that word. We believe in basically the same things. Only we believe in his word from the far side of the fulfillment of them. We believe in the blessing of the world through Abraham by Jesus. We believe that a prophet like Moses has arisen. We believe that Jesus is the son that will sit forever on the throne of David. We believe that he is the servant who has come to pay the penalty for our sins. Our faith, just as much as theirs, saves us. And we perhaps are graced with much more clarity on the other side of the cross, the object of our faith is no different. Abraham longed to see Jesus' day because Jesus was the one that he longed for by faith. He didn't long for him by name. He didn't know what he would look like. But he longed for the day when these promises would be fulfilled. And they were fulfilled in Jesus. Faith has justified Abraham. The question we might ask, though, to go just a little bit off of what our scripture is saying here. Why is there so much confusion about it? If you were only given the book of Romans and you were to read through what Paul says here, you would think that everything would be crystalline clear when you went back to the Old Testament. You'd be like, man, he's got this huge section in Romans 3 about how no one is righteous, no, not one. We're all wretched sinners and because we're all wretched sinners, we can't be justified by the work that we do. And and clearly Abraham was justified by faith because the scripture's blatantly say it, and you might say, well, what was the problem? Where did things get crossed? Where did things go sideways? Why do Jews believe that they were justified by works when Abraham was clearly justified by his faith? But it's not just Jews who are confused by this. There are plenty of people today in the world 
who call themselves Christians were confused by this. The easiest and most straightforward answer is that when you read through the Old Testament, and indeed you read through the New Testament, it is clear that faith and faithfulness have this very tight relationship to one another. It's really hard to separate them out. And I like using the words faith and faithfulness instead of faith and obedience or or some other kind of conjunction of words because faith and faithfulness sound a lot alike, but we know that they're not quite the same thing. We don't use them in quite the same way. The two are incredibly tight together. Think of the Passover. 400 years, the people of God were put in slavery. God shows up and he begins to send plagues on the people of Egypt so that he can show his power and his glory over the Pharaoh. And the last one, he says, listen, everybody needs to understand that I am going to kill the firstborn. Everyone is going to suffer from this. Whether you are Hebrew, whether you are Egyptian, you are going to suffer from this. There is one way that you can get away with this. There's one way that you can escape this punishment. That is, oddly, if you take a lamb and you smear its blood on your doorposts and lentil which is an odd way to escape a penalty like this. He's like, you can't flee, you can't get out of town, you can't just hug on to him really tight, he's going to die. you gotta, you got to do the blood thing, right? Well, who shows faith? Faith in that instance is, is almost impossible to unwind from faithfulness. If you have faith, you paint the blood on your doorposts. If you don't have faith, you don't do that. The action and the belief are just tied together. We get this a lot throughout the Old Testament. It is really hard to separate out sometimes faith from faithfulness. Abraham does indeed have faith, but he also routinely acts on that faith. He's always doing the things that God asks him to do. So while Genesis 15 has Moses recording that he was justified by faith, it was counted to him as righteousness. We read this in Genesis 26. No small passage is this. God speaking now to the chosen son Isaac, re-upping the promises, the very same promises that we read in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 to Isaac, and he says this about Abraham. First to Isaac, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. He says, the reason why I'm extending this to you is because he was not just a man of faith, but he was a man of faithfulness. I think what Paul is getting at, though, is that we have to be very careful to differentiate between faith and faithfulness. This is ultimately the problem with Catholic theology when it comes to justification. They refuse to separate out faith and faithfulness. You say, well, You are, indeed, saved by faith. You're saved by faith, and that faith is demonstrated through your approach to the sacraments. So you come and you take Mass, and you come and you give confession. You get married, you get baptized, you go undergo extreme unction right before you die. You undergo these things 
to show that your faith is real and true. But that's not faith, that's faithfulness. And when you start to mix those things, it becomes very hard to differentiate being justified by faith and being justified by works. We rightly try to avoid such things and our insistence that justification is by faith alone. But if we are not clear and if we are not careful, we talk in ways that confuse this distinction. When you hear Christians say things like, well, a Christian would never do that. Christians can't ever act that way. They can't ever vote for this candidate. They can't ever see those kinds of things. They can't ever have that kind of thing. They can't ever do this kind of stuff. That is wholly unchristian. You can't be saved and do that kind of stuff. We are not justified by faith in whom we have believed, but you are believing that you are justified by what you have achieved. If we start to define who we are as Christians by what we do, rather than simply by what Jesus has done, friends, we are near to being damned. So, what should we make of these things? Well, I think we ought to pay attention to what the text says and where it says it. At any point in time, the text could have then turned, not just in saying that Abraham was justified by faith, but it could have looked at the very things that he did, which clearly Scripture wants to uphold, and say, not only was he justified by faith, but he obeyed all my laws and my commandments, all the decrees that I gave to him, and he was justified by those things as well. But Paul is very clear. The text never says that. He is justified only by his faith. Paul's theology implies that these two things are separated. Faith and faithfulness are not the same things. They are separated, although they're never separate. They are like two tracks of a train that your Christian life runs down. And those two tracks will only support a good running of that train so long as they don't cross. Those tracks begin to converge. Your train goes off the rails. Those tracks diverge. Your train goes off the rails. In one case, you are believing all of a sudden that your faithfulness is what's justifying you along with your faith. And Paul says in Galatians 5, 4, you are severed from Christ. Anyone who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. On the other hand, when your tracks begin to diverge, you think that you are justified by faith, but your faithfulness has nothing to do with it. It doesn't have to be part of it. Jude says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. To live the Christian life, to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to understand that these things are separated, but they are not separate. You are justified by faith and faith alone. And you walk as faithfully as you can before the Lord. That is precisely because of our second point this morning. And that is, the Old Testament saints were justified and forgiven. And forgiven. I don't mean justified and forgiven in two different ways. As though they were justified here and forgiven here. 
But given the way that Paul writes, it's clear that in Paul's mind, justification is almost identical, if not to be identified with the forgiveness of God. We must keep faith and faithfulness separate because our justification is nothing less than the forgiveness of our sins. That is, our faith justifies our faithlessness. Paul goes on in Romans 4-5 to say this, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. We trust that God will justify ungodly people, and that in doing so, he will look at those ungodly people and count them as righteous. To prove this, he turns not back to Abraham, but he turns to David. And it's important that the language that David uses here and that Paul uses as well, you hear this, this language of blessing coming up here, which is exactly the same kind of language that we had back in Genesis 12 to talk about the promise of the gospel to Abraham. I will bless you, and I will bless all of those who bless you, and all of the families of the world will be blessed through you. Well, what does that blessing look like? David says that blessing looks like those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And here, through David, we have the cornerstone of what all of Christianity is about, about what all of it must be built off of. It isn't simply how to live a better life. Although, have no doubt, Jesus has much to say to you about how to live a better life or how to build a better culture. Again, have no doubt that we ought to have in our mind a way in which we live that looks better than the culture around us. It's not even how to feel better about yourself. Although I will say that knowing that you are a precious child of the immortal God ought to make you feel somewhat better about yourself. And if it doesn't, you probably need to be humbled first, and then you ought to feel better about yourself. It's not that these things don't matter, but these things are not the cornerstone. The center of all of it is that God will forgive your sin. That is blessedness. Paul here quotes from Psalm 32. It is probably a good idea to remind us that when Paul quotes a text like this, he quite often does not simply want us to think of the text that's quoted, although he might be emphasizing that particular text. But especially when it comes to Psalms, he wants to emphasize the entirety of the psalm. And it's worth looking back at Psalm 32 to hear how David talks about this forgiveness. So if you have an extra finger, maybe borrow one from your friend next to you. Keep it in Romans 4. Turn back to Psalm 32. David begins by saying the very thing that Paul has already said. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In verses 3 and 4, David begins to talk about how he wanted to keep his sin to himself. He wanted to hide his sin. He talks about how his bones wasted away and he was groaning all the day long. His hand, the Lord's hand, was heavy upon him, pressing him down. He felt dry in his very spirit. This is the picture of death. He felt like he was dying. He knew death because he was holding back his sin from God. In verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Not for nothing does he use that word cover for a second time. He said, I will not cover my sin. 
Earlier in verse 1, he said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I think that this is the first of two biblical references in this psalm. This one is back to Adam and Eve, who, when they sinned, found out that they were naked and ashamed and tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. God looked at them and said, I ain't going to do it. Here, I'm going to kill an animal and I will cover you rightly. Throughout the rest of Scripture, nakedness becomes a depiction of shame, which is a depiction of our stance before God in our sin. But God covers our shame. This is precisely the same reason why the Romans crucified people naked. It was to show them as shameful, as weak and inept. Jesus took our shame on the cross. David is reminded here that he cannot cover up his own sin. As much as he might try, his nakedness will show through. His shame will always be there. Death is waiting for him, but God can indeed cover it. He then says and gives advice to all of us. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. That rush of great waters, I think, the way I read it, the first thing that my mind goes to is the covering of the entire Egyptian army as the people went through the Red Sea. He says, listen, call out to God. Call out to God when you can. Because there will come a day when the judgment will befall you. And in that roar of many waters, God will not hear your cry. It will be stifled by death. And you will not be able to speak out to God. You will not be able to cry out to God. God will refuse to hear your prayer. In the day of salvation, call out to the Lord. Your sin ought to drive you to God, not from him. David ends the psalm by saying, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And then listen to this. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, it is almost impossible to believe that what David meant there is everyone who walks blamelessly before the Lord should praise him, and that everyone who is perfectly upright in heart ought to sing songs of joy and gladness to the Lord because they're upright in heart. He means the very thing that Paul means, the very thing that, that we would read out of Genesis 15. Who are the righteous here? Who are the upright in heart? They are those who open up their mouths and confess their sin to God because God will be faithful and just to forgive them. That's who the righteous are. The righteous have always been those who know that their iniquity and their sin can be forgiven by God. We are to see that while faith and faithfulness are indeed close, they are not the same. We are to trust that God will, by faith, Forgive our faithlessness. We are to trust that he has done this in Christ. These two things are not the same. So let us then do precisely what David instructs us to do. Let us rejoice in the God who surrounds those who trust in him. Who, in Paul's words, justifies the ungodly. Let the mystery of God's mercy fuel your praise. Listen to how strange that is. That God in his righteousness, justifies the ungodly. It is not those 
who think that they have much to offer God. It's not those who seem particularly righteous to us who are justified by God. It is not those who walk blamelessly and let everyone know how good they are. It is not those who are not in need of a Savior, but it is those who know their need of Jesus Christ, who God justifies. No matter how ungodly, no matter how wicked, those who know that they need salvation from the Lord, God is happy to justify. He is a holy God. He is a God of perfect righteousness, a God who knows nothing of sin, who always does what is right and upholds justice at every turn, and yet still justifies the ungodly by faith. So, friend, why are you here? What did you find this morning? Did you come here because you are one of those righteous people who know the Lord God and want to sing praises to him? How are you righteous? How do you know the Lord? Who are you as a Christian? Are you a Christian because of the things you do? Are you a Christian because you show up here on Sunday? Are you a Christian because you, in the parlance of the South, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do? Are you defined by the things that that you have in your life? Are you a Christian because you read your scriptures in the morning? Are you a Christian because you pray your prayers? Are you a Christian for all of the things that you do? Or are you a Christian because you solely and wholly give your heart to believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, having died for your sins, being raised for your justification? What did you find this morning? Let us hold back our sin no longer. Let us no longer try to cover it. Confess. Confess your sin to God in the name of Jesus Christ and see that he is incredibly kind to forgive you. His blood is powerful enough to undo all of your wretchedness and iniquity and sin. All of your ugliness and deceit are washed away. He will not shame you. He will not force penance upon you. He will not take revenge upon you, nor will he deny you. But because of his great mercy, the Lord your God will willingly, faithfully, lovingly, and kindly forgive your sins. And friends, that is something to sing about. Let us pray. Father, we come now to lift up our voices in response to the gift of righteousness that we have been given in Christ to speak of the lamb slain for us, the very same lion who defends our cause. Let our voices harmonize with our hearts. Let what we say resonate with what indeed is our true belief. Be glorified among your people. Show us our sin that we may run to Jesus Christ, the faithful one, whose mercy is true every single morning. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.